Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go indeed. Mm. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being with us. I say us, but it's just me today. Harold just thought it was a Wednesday. Um, that's uh, that's my solo day, you guys. Also a line from a movie, uh, Stranger Than Fiction. If you haven't seen that movie, good flick. Check it out. Um, not, not at all what you'd expect given the actors that are in it. Uh, in any case, it is, uh, it is a Wednesday. If you're hearing this, it's a Wednesday. I can't promise you that I recorded this on a Wednesday. Um, so what are we doing today? Well, last couple of times we got together for our Wednesday episodes, I was reading this really crazy book, uh, Carl Jung's Red Book, and I was letting you guys know all about it. And I told you there's a lot yet to be read, so I've got a lot more that I could bring to you. So I just got a little bit of a segment today um, to add to the first two episodes. I thought I would go ahead and bring that to you. I think I might um, spend a little time on some other things next week, but um, but you're going to get some uh, Gandalf the Red Part 3 today. Um, we're going to dive back into Carl Jung's Red Book. And just to refresh you, especially if you're one of those naughty listeners that didn't listen to the first two episodes or find it confusing that they're not in order. Um, guys, that's because I get bored just like anybody else. Uh, I want to kind of uh, not do the same thing week after week after week all the time. Um, so take it with a grain of salt. Um, I do that I do that for me, mostly. Um, but anyway, part three of Gandalf the Red, uh, where we began was Carl Jung, the great psychologist. Um, talking about this, this exercise that I did, and I explained to you guys last time, but I'll just real briefly tell you again, uh, this process he calls active imagination, which is something that he developed. I say that, but really what it is is fantasizing, just having a waking dream, having a daydream. But imagine becoming so good at fantasizing that you could do it on command really well and really vividly. So this is what Carl Jung did. He sat down and, you know, by himself in the dark or whatever. I, I don't know what the what his uh, what his system was, but he would sit there and think, um, well, maybe maybe it's more fair to say he wouldn't think he would allow images to come into his mind and he would and he would try to keep them there, try to examine them, try to play with them a little bit until he was able to sort of on command, draw up these psychic images that he'd seen before, kind of random images, but bring them back and, you know, consistently study them 
allow them to interact with other images that he that he can you know um, bring into his mind, his mind's eye, and and learn from the interactions of his fantasy images. So it sounds strange, but it's not not dissimilar to trying to figure out what your dream means, or if you're one of those people that believes dreams are really trying to tell you something, you know, like you're unconscious or trying to, you know, trying to reveal something that you're avoiding, you know, if you have some kind of a hang up and maybe there's some truth in your dreams, um, you know, it's kind of goes along those lines, but it gets really interesting. And in part one, we had this, we had this really interesting dialogue between Carl Jung and the psychic forces that exist in his in his mind, you know, in his unconscious, the spirit of the depths and the spirit of the times. And he's speaking to these spirits and he's also trying to speak to his soul. You know, he's trying and failing. And so it's just this weird dialogue or trialogue or whatever you want to call it between Jung and these spirits. Um, and Jung doesn't, he doesn't take these spirits to be supernatural beings exactly. He doesn't take them to be the way a traditional person might think who's religious or, you know, an ancient person might, might have thought about the gods and the angels and demons and, and forces that existed in nature. Um, it's not like that, really. Um, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of history um, and a lot of thinking and a lot of development that Carl Jung went through um, prior to the Red Book. Because, as I mentioned before, this book didn't get published till after he died. And, you know, there's reason to believe he never intended on publishing it at all. So we're really getting, I guess, unedited access to Carl Jung's fantasies and his, the processes of, the process of him sort of coming to understand himself. And as a psychologist, that's, that means something significant, you know, what Carl Jung's doing is, you know, in his practice, let's say, with other people, is trying to figure that out for them and help them through that process. And the Red Book is Carl Jung doing that with himself. And it kind of seems that way sometimes. It kind of seems like Carl Jung is on the, um, is on the psychologist's couch, you know? Um, but I digress. In the, in the first episode, we had, again, an, an introduction to the spirits that exist within Jung, and we got to see the way he interacted with them, which was strange. It's like these things that make up him at the deepest level, and he's afraid of them, and he doesn't trust them, and and you know he and but yet he still yearns for whatever it is they have to offer. And it's like this really confusing and interesting back and forth between Young and his self, basically. And in the first episode, there was this thing that was happening where. Young was trying to understand what he is, what God is, some of these really deep questions. And he kept getting his soul and these spirits within him kept dragging him back to focusing on these things he didn't want to focus on, which were the smallest and most banal things of of his existence, you know? Um, the things that he thinks aren't important, things he thinks are small, the things he thinks are gross, you know, the things he th that he um, uh, revolts from, you know, the, the things that he would consider low and lowly and not godlike, you know. He was continually pulled back into basically being forced to look at those things like they are great, like they are God, trying to understand how God can be something evil, something disgusting, something small and, and low. And for most people, that 
that doesn't sound right at all. And to Young, it didn't sound right at all. But he just kept getting pulled back into it. Like, this is something his soul wanted him to see, you know, or wanted him to realize. And he even said that about himself. You know, he said that his soul is something that he considered to be small, pitiably small. And his soul was trying to force him to see it as large. And I, I told you guys last time what I thought that meant. And it, and it means something like, again, if you're sitting down in the quiet talking to yourself and you have a problem or a question and you're trying to understand it you know, and you're struggling, what should I do? You know, what should I be? Um, you know, should I choose this or that? You know, any of these sort of moments in our lives where, where we aren't sure what to do and we think about the problem. And we propose ideas, possible solutions, um, things like that. You can't, you almost can't help when you think about a problem to think of an answer or a solution. And what Jung thought was that those things that he was suggesting as answers, he couldn't trust them because he's a flawed human being and he knows better than anybody else how flawed he is, how little he knows so how is he supposed to trust himself to answer these, mo these most difficult and important questions? He can't trust himself. That is what he meant when he said he thought that his soul was pitiably small. Something like that. And what, he, what his soul was trying to get him to realize is this thing that he's besmirching as small and pitiable, that that thing that he doesn't trust and is afraid of is actually something like God, something quite the opposite of pitiably small, all-powerful, something like that. And he had to come to terms with this with this intuition that is bringing together opposites, you know? It's a paradox. It's nonsense. And that's what we saw in the second episode, is that Jung, he said in, in no uncertain terms that his the advice of his soul trying to get closer and closer to his soul and understand what it is and what he is and all those things, that um, it was dragging him into madness. He felt like he was literally going crazy. And that's super interesting. It's interesting for lots of reasons. It's like it helps you to understand the reluctance and the resistance that he has to it. You know, even though it's his own soul and it's for his own good, as far as we as far as we know, but he is reluctant, you know, to follow. He's afraid, you know. Um, th th there's this idea in mythology and in religion that that madness is divine, and that may sound strange, you know, but it's like there's lots of different kinds of madness, lots of different types of crazy, if, if for lack of a better word. But there were people in history, and, and the character Floki I've talked about before from the show Vikings comes to mind as somebody like that, you know, the shaman uh, in the village. If we go back to prehistoric times or even ancient times, you know, those sorts of people that were socially pariahs, that were socially unacceptable, that couldn't fit in, you know, the, the schizophrenic types, uh, the antisocial types, the bipolar types, all these names that we give them today. Those people oftentimes had a special role in the society, and it was a, it was a spiritual one. It was a religious one, um, and those people were a lot. A lot of times, they were what you might call crazy today, and by merit of being crazy, they saw things differently. They saw the world differently. 
they saw it the way they saw it the way like Native American tribes or sub-Saharan African tribes or Aboriginal Australians, like tribal people that have an animistic religion that see the world as filled with spirits, you know? You can imagine that's a way in which someone who's mad might actually see the world, you know? Like it's imbued with meaning, meaning everywhere you look, and everything's alive, even the things that don't seem alive. And you can understand, like, religions developed with those sorts of beliefs. And where those ideas come from is not from a sane mind. It's not from a healthy, functioning mind. It's something that you might, you might experience if you were nuts. Divine madness, you know? The ability to see things closer to how they actually are. And less through the veil, like all the healthy people see it, you know? And that's not dissimilar to the way that you might see the world through a mystic experience or a psychedelic mystic experience. That all of the objects around you do seem alive. All of the objects and events do seem meaningful. And there's something about that that might not be crazy. There's something about that that might be a deep spiritual truth. And this is what's happening to Jung right now. When we wrapped up the last episode, his soul was pulling him into madness. So that's what we're going to look at today. Let's, let's jump into my little brief intro, which goes something like this. In parts one and two, we saw Jung seeking and yearning for his soul as if she were a stranger or a ghost. We witnessed the struggle within himself as he grasped blindly at the darkness within. There, we met the spirit of the time, which bends us always towards convention and established order, as well as the spirit of the depths, whose very existence threatens that order with destruction and with promise. His fears, doubts, and confusion are laid bare for all to see as Young tries and fails to find his soul. We then watch him as he descends into his self and finds there a desolate wasteland. How terrible the place of his inner self, torturous and bleak. Remember, he called it a desert. Remember, he said, what happens to your house if you go away, if you're not there? Right? What happens? It, it becomes dilapidated, and the cobwebs form, and the plumbing starts to leak. This is how he described his soul. He said, look, I haven't been here. I've been living all sorts of other places. I haven't been living within myself. And so his soul was a desert, and it was hard for him to be there. You know, He wasn't used to being there. Just imagine standing in the middle of the Sahara or something. You know, It would be hot, and you would be parched and blistered, and tortured, and that's how he describes trying to be within himself, in this place that he's not used to, the place that should be the most familiar to him, the most comforting to him, the place that should be home, his self. To him, it's torturous, bleak, and barren desert. But just when it seems the pain and emptiness are too much for young to bear, in that darkness, and most desperate of moments, 
Jung finally succeeded in summoning his soul. The desert is no longer empty because there stands the image of his soul. And Jung saw her for the first time. It wasn't just a feeling. It wasn't just an abstraction. You know, it was an image, an image in his mind, but it's an image nonetheless of something that represented his soul. Now, what do you do with an image? You know, Jung has something now. He has a, he has a beginning. He has an image. But what, do you, what does he do next? He asks the question, but there's no one but himself there to provide an answer. What will Jung do? What can he do? What will guide him? And should he listen? Well, he's gotten this far. What's one more risk? And that brings us to the book. This first section I'm going to call Descent into Hell. It's actually the title of the chapter. Descent into Hell. Dun, dun, dun. All right, guys. Let's get into it. It starts like this. In the following night, the air was filled with many voices. Should I entrust myself to this confusion? I shuddered. Do you want me to leave myself to the madness of my own darkness? You fall, and I want to fall with you, whoever you are. All right, I just want to stop there. That opening opening lines are dynamite. So he's describing this scene where he's hearing voices. He says the night and then the night in the air was filled with voices. These are the spirits within him that he's hearing. And he and you know it's like confusion. You know he says should I should I entrust myself to this confusion? It's like a bunch of people talking all at once. You can't make head or tails of it. You know. And he says I shuddered. You know. He's scared of this strange experience he's having of being aware of all of these forces within him and it's like a bunch of people talking over each other he can make head nor tails of it and he asks himself do you want me to leave myself to the madness of my own darkness he's like do i just go with this do i just sink sink down into the into the voices and become part of this chaos he says you fall like he's talking to his soul and i want to fall with you you know he wants to he wants to be his soul he wants to integrate his soul he wants to he wants to imitate his soul you fall and i want to fall with you whoever you are he still doesn't know her right he still doesn't know his own soul then he says the spirit of the depths opened my eyes and i caught a glimpse of the inner things the world of my soul the many formed and changing so there's something great about that. The world of his soul. First of all, he calls it a glimpse of inner things. So this is all happening within him, in his psyche, you know. And he says, the world of my soul, the many formed and changing. And so this reminds me of things like, like what we talked about with Alfred North Whitehead in a prior, prior podcast, you know, in his process philosophy. That there's a way of looking at, at looking at the ground of reality. You know, what everything comes from is based on, you know, the, the, the ground of being. There's a way to look at that as something like transformation. That's what Alfred North Whitehead did. He saw God as something like a process. You know, it involves the cosmos, the material world. 
and it involves something that the material world comes from. You know, something that I can't be more specific than just to call it potentiality. So there's a there's a back and forth between being and potentiality, and and that is what God is. You know, that is what reality is. It's this process. And when Jung calls his soul many formed and changing, that's the image that comes to my mind. It's like the fractal geometry that, that people say that they see in psychedelic visions. You know, it's like geometry, shapes that are constantly changing and transforming their colors, their shapes, you know, what's going on within them and without them in the scale. All of that's continually changing and transforming and it makes you feel like you're moving or floating or flying. That's part of the psychedelic mystic experience. Very, very common. And it's so similar how Jung is describing his soul. And I find that fascinating. You know, because Jung sees the soul as, as an animating force. You know, that's where the word anima or animism comes from. The spirit of the soul is the thing in you that makes you alive. It's responsible for you being alive and able to move and able to make decisions and choices, able to bend and, sh- and, and, uh, and mold and form the world around you. That's your soul. You know, that's what animates you. And that thing, according to Jung, is many formed and changing. It's like constantly transforming. Isn't that interesting? You know, it's funny because in psychedelic experience, that same sort of visual, it does, it does have, or it brings with it a feeling of motion or moving. And it does make those fractal images seem alive because they're changing and moving and, and it looks like they're alive. It reminds me of this image I saw just recently online. It was like a stained image of a human cell and all of the different organelles and things going on inside of it, you could see this really detailed, highly magnified image of a stained human cell. And it was like somebody let off a bomb. It was like colors and shapes and, you know, all this stuff there. It it looked like the busiest city you've ever seen inside inside this human cell constantly moving and changing and transforming and that's what we're talking about you know we're talking about whatever it is within the cell that makes it alive whatever it is within your body that makes you alive and then I think Jung would even go a step further and say the things within your ideas your concepts and your abstractions like language and music and everything else the thing that's in those things that makes them alive, that makes them powerful and potent in the world, that that is the same thing. It's like the same thing that's in you that makes you alive. It's the soul. It's amazing. It's amazing to wrap your brain around that. So I think that's interesting, the way Jung describes his soul. He goes on, he says, When the desert begins to bloom, it brings forth strange plants. You will consider yourself mad, and in a certain sense, you will in fact be mad. To the extent that the Christianity of this time lacks madness, it lacks divine life. Take note of what the ancients taught us in images. Madness is divine. All right, well, the hair's standing up my arms. Fuck. Okay, so remember where we were in the last episode was in the desert 
It was in the desert of Jung's self. And he said before that the desert is an image. It's, an, it's a place where you go to be alone. It's a place where you go to come in contact with yourself, with your deepest self, when there's no other people or events going around to, around you to distract you. You know, you're not going to be living in other people's uh, minds or in other in events that are going You're not putting your consciousness there. You're focusing it within. You're trying to see what you are. You're trying to experience what you really are. You do that alone, in solitude, in the desert. That's what the monks did in, in, in the Middle Ages. They went off into the wilderness and they, where they could be alone. And they didn't talk to each other. They took vows of silence and vows of celibacy. And they were just there together, but all by themselves. You know, getting to know themselves, trying to understand what's hidden there. And so this, that's where we were in the last episode, in the desert, where Jung finally decided to, to focus his consciousness within, to try to be within himself and see what's there and, what, and, you know, what's possible within himself. And he said there was nothing there. It was a desert. And it was torturous. And he, and he, he was upset about it, you know. He was, he was afraid. He was disappointed, you know. He didn't, he didn't expect to go within himself to, in search after his soul and find himself in a barren desert where he was being tortured, just being there, you know. But after he was there a while and he was able to make the image of his soul manifest in the desert, then there was something there, you know. Then the desert wasn't empty anymore. And that's where we're sort of, that's where we're sort of jumping off from when, when we say, when the desert begins to bloom, Right, so that's what happened when Young's soul appeared in the desert. It brings forth strange plants. So things you've never seen before, things that have never been in, in your soul before, in that desert before, are going to emerge. They're going to start to come like, like a domino effect. Once the soul is there, you know, the whole thing, the whole thing starts to erupt uh, with new life. And it's like, going back to what I said a minute ago, it's like bringing... Young's soul, that animating force, that, that force that makes him alive, bringing that presence into himself, into his soul. And what happens is that desert becomes alive again. You know, he's put his soul there and all these new things be, become, you know, are born from, from, the, from the barren desert. So that's the image that you should see here. This, you know, if you've ever seen one of those videos or pictures of what happens in the, in the actual desert, you know, like in the, uh, in New Mexico or Arizona or Texas or something, when when uh, there, there's been a long, long drought, and that's all very normal. And then you've got this rare storm that showers the desert. Now, that's not normal, you know, and maybe there was no plants there for 20 years, and you get this downpour. And then for this brief period of time, the desert literally explodes with all this life. You see you know, cacti and plants and, and grasses, they, they start like literally springing up from the cracks in the parched soil, blooming with flowers all over the place. All you see is, you know, patches of just dry sand and these flowers everywhere. It's absolutely amazing, you know? And that's what he's trying to describe. And then he says, you will consider yourself mad. And then in a certain sense, you will in fact be mad. And then he, then he says this weird thing about Christianity. He says, to the extent that, Christi that the Christianity of this time lacks madness, it lacks divine life. So what he's saying here is that there's, this, there's a necessity to madness. Like I was describing to you earlier, this idea of divine madness. 
going back to the Floki idea or the shamanistic idea, that there's something about madness that shows you the world differently. And that there's some truth in that that's hidden from us normally. And he's like, look, you might have a religious tradition. You might have, you might have a religion like what dominated the time of Jung and really of, of, our, of our time as well, Christianity. And he's making the, the sort of implication here that once upon a time, Christianity might have had this vein of divine madness to it. It had, in the spirits of the um, Christians of that time, of that, of that early time, let's say, the, the remnants of that type of spiritual clarity that you might only see if you were crazy or if you were tripping psychedelic, let's say, that that was somehow alive in early Christianity or once upon a time. And as that fades and goes away, that the religion itself becomes dried up and dead, that it will lack divine life, you know? And so that, that religion can become a desert again, just like young soul did, if it lacks sufficient madness, you know? And I just think that's interesting. It, like, it makes me think again of the yin and the yang, you know? Um, they're opposites in union. And that idea comes up so much in religion and in, um, and in um, mythology and, and in psychology for that matter, that understanding God as the union of opposites, that that paradox is something that is present in mystic experience. It's present in psychedelic experience trying to come to terms with something that you can't come to terms with. There's this, I don't know what other word to use than paradox, but there's something about the paradox that you know, especially in that mystic experience, you know is super important. Like that, in the paradox is where there's some deep and hidden meaning, you know? And it's the union of opposites. The syzygy, as Jung will call it, or the Ouroboros that Jordan Peterson calls it. And when Jordan Peterson describes it, he uses that yin-yang symbol and he says, you've got the black side and you've got the white side. So if we're thinking about opposites, let's call one side one side sanity and the other side madness. And on the black side, you have a little dot of white and on the white side, you have a little dot of black. And that's supposed to represent the possibility, the ever-present possibility that the white could become black the black could become white. The sanity can become madness. And the madness can become sanity. And in fact, you can't have one without the other. You might like to say, no, I, no, no, thank you. you hold, hold the madness. I'd rather just have the sanity. Let's just do 100% sanity. How about that? That's impossible. Because sanity and madness aren't two separate things. They might seem that way because they're opposites. But again, if you, if you don't have madness, there's no such thing as sanity. It doesn't have meaning. They only have meaning together. They are one thing. That's how, that's how you know they're one thing. It's like a spectrum. On one end of it, you have madness. On one end of it, you have sanity. But they meet in the middle somewhere. And one can become the other, and the other can become the one. And that's the nature of reality. All right. Um, he goes on. If you enter into the world of the soul, you are like a madman. But know that there is a divine madness, 
which is nothing other than the overpowering of the spirit of this time through the spirit of the depths. So you remember when we talked about this in prior episodes, it was it to me it always seemed kind of like a an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other, um, with, with the spirit of the time and the spirit of the depths. But it also seems at times like they're both the devil and they're both angels. You know, it's not so cut and dry. The spirit of the time is is something that's telling young to focus on the here and now and, and to focus on established order and and to you know to exist to exist as he does. The spirit of the depths on the other side is telling him that the spirit of the times is sort of uh, um, pulling the wool down over his eyes and that there's a greater, deeper truth there. You know, the spirit of the depth is something like the spirit of all time, not just of this time, but of all time. And he's got some deeper truths to tell and he contradicts the spirit of the times and they're going back and forth with one another. And so it's, there's this interesting thing going on. And he says that, he says here that to know that there is a divine madness, which is nothing other than the overpowering of the spirit of this time by the spirit of the depth, you know, it's like there's a, there's a truth behind every era, you know, and time is something that's changing and fleeting, but behind the changing and the fleeting, behind the time, there's something else going on. There's something deeper. The spirit of the depths. So something that's always there in a different mask in every era, in every epoch, you know? And he said that when you overcome the spirit of the time to reach that deeper truth, you know, that's represented by the spirit of the depths, that's madness. You know? That's madness. And I think about things like um, like people who refuse to be put into a cultural box, you know, like these, um, these two, these two artists from an episode of, um, from an episode of, uh, what is that? Uh, now I can't think of it. History Channel show where the two guys, <laughs> two guys go around looking through everyone's junk and finding treasures, whatever it's called. Um, there was these two guys that they met who like wore crazy hats and drove around on a tandem bike and, uh, just looked really strange. Their house was very, very strange. Like these people bucked all the traditions. They didn't care about established order. They didn't care about cultural norms. They didn't care about what, you know, what was acceptable. They were doing their own thing. And there's part of us that see that and think those dudes are crazy. That's the kind of madness that he's talking about. Another idea that's related to this comes to mind from, from some things that Jordan Peterson has said. And he, he talks about how, he talks about how the kind of Messiah um, figure in myth is related to another figure. Um, it's like the trickster, you know, the trickster figure in mythology. The trickster is always a troublemaker. He's always getting the hero into trouble, trying to drag him down. And it's like, yeah, that's that seems to be the polar opposite of the hero himself, who's trying to overcome and to do something great. Um, but in truth, those two characters are like opposites, like Christ and the Antichrist. And just like we talked about with madness and sanity, you can't have one without the other. You need to have them both. You know? Um, so, something like this. It's possible for one spirit to conquer the other. You know, the spirit of the depths to conquer the spirit of the times. And that might, e that might be even desirable. And that goes back to the, the notion that you might prefer sanity over madness. That, that makes perfect sense to me. But it can never permanently be that way. 
There has to be a push and a pull, like a process, like we talked about with Whitehead. There's a harmony going on between madness and sanity. And if one conquers the other, they sort of both die because you can't have one without the other. So this dance is important. This back and forth is important between opposites. He goes on, he says, The spirit of this time is ungodly. The spirit of the depths is ungodly. Balance is godly. Depths and surface should mix so that new life can develop. Yet the new life does not develop outside us, but within us. All right, so I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but this is exactly what I was saying a minute ago. When he says that the spirit of, of the time is ungodly, um, you kind of want to agree with him on that because, again, you know that there's this deeper truth behind that, the spirit of the depths. But then he says, the spirit of the depths is ungodly. So now you're like, okay, well, which is it? You know, should I be, should I be following the spirit of the time? Should I be following the spirit of the depth? This is the same question that Jung has. And the answer he gives himself is to say, both of them are ungodly, man. It's a balance between the two that you want. And again, that's exactly what I said a minute ago. You truly can't have one without the other. You must have both. You must have a balance. That's what the yin and the yang symbol are, are, are showing you. And he describes it. He says, depths and surface. And what by that he means something like the spirit of the depths and the spirit of the times. They have to mix so that new life can develop. Okay, so that's the idea of the syzygy or the Ouroboros. You've got opposites united. What happens when you unite opposites, like masculine and feminine, man and woman? When you combine them, when you think of them as one thing, what you have is the symbol of, of a sexual act. You have a generative act, and new life comes from that. That's the way to think about the syzygy. When opposites are united, we like to think about that as canceling out somehow. Like I always say, a negative five and a positive five. You put them together, you got bupkis. No, no. In this case, when you, have, when you have opposites united, what you have is not bupkis. What you have is the supreme meaning. That's what Jung called it. You have something like potentiality, something that can become anything, something that be, can become something new, you know, to bring something new into the world. And that's what, that's what the, the union of opposites does. When male and female come together, they have a child. That analogy is the same, you know, across this entire, the entire spectrum, right? It's like a fractal picture. That same thing is happening at, at all the various levels you can imagine, so you mix them, you mix the opposites, and you get from that new life. And that new life comes from within us. You know, so you can understand a, a physical baby just like that, you know, an actual baby being born with another human being. That's true. But you can also see it as a new self, you know, as, as yourself transformed. You know, when, when something happens to you that's significant and you become reborn, like what happens if you have a mystic experience or what happens when you become, you know, mature mentally and you become a man or a woman and you're no longer a child. You know, these sorts of transformations that happen to us, they create something new. We become something new. And that new thing, where does it, where does it come from? From within, from within us. 
So you, you can see that, you know, developing a new personality or a new purpose for living or a new skill, right? You know, you're learning something new. You transform your mind, your body, your psyche. So, and what's, what's important there is this idea of, of transformation, bringing something new into the world. And that brings us now to uh, one of those segments of the Red Book that is the spirits and the soul within Jung speaking to him. And so the first one goes like this. Whoever looks from inside knows that everything is new. The events that happen are always the same, but the creative depths of man are not. Events signify nothing. They signify only in us. We create the meaning of events. We seek in ourselves the meaning of events so that the way of what is to come becomes apparent and our life can flow again. Okay, so what does he mean by that? He said, the events that happen are always the same. And so that makes me think of things like, you're born, you live, and you die. I mean, you're born, you fall in love, you have challenges, you overcome, you fail, you die. It's like everybody has the same events that happen to them in that respect. We've all been a fetus, you know? We've all been a baby. We've all been a sperm. We've all, you know, we all have the same history. And we all have the same things that happen to us. Every man lives and every man dies. Every man loves and hates and struggles and fails and succeeds. We all have the same pattern, you know? And you look out at the cosmos and you see stars being born, you know, stars dying, planets forming, you know, um, things getting sucked into black holes. That happens everywhere. Every solar system goes through that process. The star is born. It becomes a red giant. It swallows up the, the planets. It collapses back into a white dwarf or a, or a black hole. Even on the most cosmic scale, every event is the same Every pattern is the same. The process is the same, recurring over and over and over again. So he, he points that out. Every event is the same. Every Imagine like every human life is like somebody's attempt to live it. And everyone that comes after you is doing the same thing you did. You know, you have a different face. You're wearing a different mask. But it's the same life being lived over and over and over and so he points this out, you know. And he says some interesting stuff about, about, about meaning, you know. He's like, look, events signify nothing. They're just cycles that repeat. But they do signify something in us. So we create the meaning of events. And that may sound strange to you. It may sound like a godlike power that we can create the meaning to events. But I'll give you an example. Suppose you run into some bad luck and lots of things are happening to you that you would rather not happen. You know, maybe you, your marriage falls apart. You lose your job. You have all these obstacles and things that are popping up. Nothing's going your way. Nothing's going the way you would have it go. And you're, you're in darkness. You're in chaos. You're, you're, you know, you're in a bad, a bad place. You're struggling to figure out how to put the pieces back together and how to move forward. When you're in that chaos, try to picture that. You know, everything you thought you knew, you didn't know. Your wife's cheating on you. You're not doing well at your job. You thought you were, but now you're fired. You know, all, everything is topsy-turvy. Nothing means what you thought it meant. Nothing is what you thought it was, you know? 
and you find yourself in, in this chaos. It's hard in that chaos to figure out what to do, you know? So how can your life flow again? How can you figure out what to do next when nothing is what it seemed to be, when everything in your entire reality was a lie, and now you've come face-to-face with that reality and you have to make sense of it again? It's like really, really hard. But all of us find ourselves in situations like that and many times throughout our lives, you know? So imagine you're in one of those situations and you say to yourself, instead of saying, I don't know what any of this means, I'm lost, you know, woe is me, I just want to die, you know, all the things you say when you're deeply depressed. Instead of that, what if you say, you know what, I think I lost, you know, my my significant other because X, Y, Z, because I was really meant to be with someone else, because, you know, her and I really weren't making each other happy, because, um, you know, uh, whatever, whatever meaning you want to give to that event you can and in fact you do and in fact you kind of have to because until you figure out how to put that event into context so that you can move on with your life then you don't move on with your life you find yourself in freaking limbo you know what i mean if you've been there you know what i mean you have to figure out a way to put some context to it to give the event meaning then you say to yourself, it was for the best. Then you say to yourself, I can now take the next step. But only when you give the event meaning, right? Let's, let's use the job example. You get fired from your job and you say, you know, what was me? What am I going to do next? How am I going to get by? All that stuff. And then eventually you say to yourself, that's not doing me any good, thinking those thoughts. So what does it mean that I lost my job? Maybe... I meant for it for something else. Maybe I meant for something better. Maybe I should go back to school. Maybe I should finish that project I've always wanted to do. Then suddenly you have you have meaning attached to the event and then you can move on. But only then. Otherwise you just wallow in it. And if you've been there, you know what I mean. And that brings me to this last line where he says He says, we create the meaning of events so that the way of what is to come becomes apparent. And when Jung says the way of what is to come, what he means is is the future. What's, What's going to come next? And he says, that becomes apparent so that our life can flow again. And that is necessary. That we have to come up. We have to create for ourselves the meaning to events so that we can move on with our lives, so that we can move forward in whatever way that is. So again, if you were one of those people that after hearing Jung say you have to make your own meaning, or you have to attribute your own you know, meaning to events, that events really are important. They're always happening the same way, over and over again for everyone, all the time, for everything, all the time. Events are meaningless. It's just a cycle over and over and over again. What do we do with those with those events. You know, we figure out what they mean so that we can move forward into the future. It's amazing. It's amazing. Jordan Peterson talked a lot about that in Maps of Meaning as well, and I can see where he got it. You know, he got it right from Jung. So he's saying that reality is a recurring series of of cycles or patterns, and that those events are merely opportunities for novelty 
for us to assign some meaning to it so we can move on in some direction. It's funny to think about events as opportunities. They're recurring chances to become new. And we determine the meaning of these otherwise meaningless opportunities by attributing to them significance for how or why we are going to transform, for what will come next. Now we can let those opportunities go unfulfilled, or we can make them whatever we need them to be to move forward. And there's a deep, deep truth in that. It goes on. That which you need comes from yourself, namely the meaning of events. The meaning of events is the way of salvation that you create. It is the mastery of this world and the assertion of your soul in the world. This meaning of events is the supreme meaning. That is the way, the bridge, and the going across. All right, so I don't know if it, if it catches you the same way as it caught me, but when he talks about the supreme meaning being the way, the bridge, and the going across, it reminds me of the Bible describing Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Um, again, I don't, I don't know if that's just me uh, or if Young kind of did the same thing I, I did there, but it's what it sounds like. So he's just saying here the same thing that we said before, that human beings actually do create uh, the significance of events, that we sort of invent them for ourselves. And it's necessary for us to do that so we can move forward. And he Young calls that here uh, the way of salvation. So by that, he doesn't mean some kind of abstract religious salvation. He means the ability to move forward with your life, you know? That's salvation. And if you ever find yourself in a situation where you don't know what you're doing with your life or what you want to do with your life and you feel the pain involved with that, then it's reasonable to call it salvation. Then you understand what he means. All right, so he says the meaning of events is the supreme meaning. And remember, the supreme meaning, he, he earlier he called it the union of opposites, of sense and absurdity, you know, of sense and madness. And when you bring those things together, again, you don't end up with, you know, opposites canceling each other out so that you're left with nothing. What you have is something like infinite meaning or the potential for meaning. It could become any meaning. It's whatever could become any meaning, any meaning you want. It's the potential, you know, the union of opposites is something like that, like potential. That, he says, is the way, the bridge, and the going across. And if I ask myself, does potentiality in that context mean what Jesus was trying to say God is when he said the way, the truth, and the life? I think, I think there's a, a reasonable analogy that potentiality is something like what I would call God. And Jung is saying that that is the way of what is to come. You know, what, what is the future going to be? It's going to come from potentiality. Exactly. Of course. Where else could it come from? You know? All right, so then now we move back to Jung's perspective, because before we were sort of speaking uh, the soul, the spirits and soul within Jung were speaking. Now we go back to Jung, and he says... I myself am a sacrificer and sacrificed. And this is something that Jung will say later in the Red Book, and I've, 
I said after having a mystic experience of my own, and this resonated with me really, really deeply, every sacrifice is a self-sacrifice. I think that's true. I think when you have a mystic experience and you understand everything to be one, everything is one, then you know that anytime anything is sacrificed ever, it's a sacrifice of of the one to itself. So every sacrifice is a self-sacrifice. And I think that's important. It's important to hold that idea in mind as we continue through uh, the rest of this. So Jung says, In you, the reborn one will come to be, and the sun of the depths will rise, and a thousand serpents will develop from your dead matter and fall on the sun to choke it. Okay, Okay, wow. He says, in you, the reborn one will come to be. And so that means, uh, like what we said earlier, um, about you know significant life changes, the things that cause you to transform and to become somebody different, to be, have a new personality, you know? Those things happen when you become mature, when you have a, um, you know, when you have a, a particularly powerfully good experience or a particularly powerfully bad one. Um, you know, these are like, you know, when you, when you cease being naive, you know, these are all sort of instances where you become somebody new, somebody different from what you once were in a significant way. And you do feel reborn. You do feel like you've become something different from what you used to be. And he says that that comes from within you, you know. In you, the reborn one will come to be. And I think that's connected to what he said before, when he said, I myself am a sacrificer and sacrificed. So what he means is something like, in order for you to become something new or something more, you have to sacrifice what you used to be, right? You can't be that anymore. If you want to be something new, something more, you can't be what you used to be. You have to sacrifice that so that you can be born again from within yourself. And then we get this interesting imagery where he says, the sun of the depths will rise. You know, the depths, it's like the dark place, the place where there is no sun. And so you get this image of a new sun arising in the darkness where there was never a sun before. And then a thousand serpents will develop from your dead matter and fall on the sun to choke it. And it's like a, I want to say it's like a threat, but it's, it's just another one of those eventualities. It's another one of those promises that, that, he, that he's making where he says, when you become new, you're going to have this new sun rising from, your, from the darkness within, right? Your new self is being born. And when that happens, you have to sacrifice the thing you used to be. And he's, that's when he says, a thousand serpents will develop from your dead matter, from what you used to be, right? And it falls on that new sun trying to choke it. What does that mean? What is he saying? He's saying something like, when you become new, when, when you become something greater than what you used to be, that what you used to be kind of fights against the, the birth of that new you. It fights against the, the, the becoming, you know? It tries to choke out that new sun, blot it out. And if you ever tried to do anything hard, you know, quit smoking or get in shape or something like that. You know what, what he's saying. He's saying all of your old habits, all of the old normals, all of the, the, the patterns that you've, you know, um, 
that you've uh, followed, um, you know, countless times before until the, until you've created giant deep ruts in your, in your psyche, you know, those paths, those well-trodden paths where you've done that thing over and over and over again, you know, lying or overeating or being lazy or anything that you might want to change about yourself. All of those habits die hard. You know that. You're constantly struggling against them. You're constantly fighting against who you used to be. And that, you know, dead matter is trying to blot out the new you. That could, that's, that's trying to rise, you know? So that's the picture that he's painting. It's something like that. And then he asks this. He says, When do men fall on their brothers with mighty weapons and bloody acts? They do such if they do not know that their brother is themselves. But whom do people kill? They kill the noble, the brave, the heroes. They take aim at these and do not know that with these they mean themselves. All right, so there's a lot going on there, but he's asking, remember, he's talking about, he's talking about the necessity of murder. And by that I mean he has to kill his old self to become something new, to, to clear the path to become something more, something new. And it, it involves a sacrifice, something like killing what he used to be. And he says, when do men do that? He says, when do men fall on their brothers with weapons and bloody acts? When do we murder? We do that, he says, when we don't realize that our brother is ourselves. That's when we that's when we find the power in ourselves to kill our brother. When we realize, when we convince ourselves that our brother isn't ourself. So maybe that's that's what we've got to do. We've got to we've got to cease to identify with our old self so that we can do what we have to do, so that we can kill so that we could kill him, kill ourselves, you know, and not in a literal way, of course, but in this sort of spiritual or, or psychic way to pave the way to whoever we will be, the way that is to come, as Jung likes to say. Then he says, whom do people kill? They kill the noble, the brave, the heroes. You know, I think about that, like, you know, in our culture, we think being brave is a is a virtuous character, and and being willing to fight and to die for your family, for your loved ones, for your country. That all seems very noble in our culture, in the United States, in the West. You know, today. And so, when we send our soldiers out off to war, those are the ones we're sending. You know, the brave, the ones that are willing to 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 kill and to die. Uh, and it's scary and terrible, and nobody wants to do those things. But the ones that are willing to, those are the ones we're sending off to Afghanistan to die. And you have to ask yourself, why are we doing that? Why are we sending the best of us to die? And that's an instinct that we have to fight, you know? If you want to kill off your old self so that you can be something, somebody better, so you can be somebody new, you have to be careful that you're not killing off the noble part of ourselves. You know, be careful, be careful what you're killing, you know. And then the idea that our brothers, that we could identify our brothers as ourselves, that's not, you know, unheard of. If you're a Christian, you've heard that, it, you know, something very like that coming from the Bible, love your neighbor as yourself, that kind of thing. But there's something even beyond that. There's something mystical about that, that to understand that your brother is yourself, 
that's a recognition of the oneness, and that's something that does come directly from mystic experience. All right, he says, the source of blood that follows the shrouding of the sun is also the source of new life. So that old that old you that you're that you're sacrificing so that you can be born again, you know, that's the thing that gives life to the new you, you know? You're you're sacrificing yourself to yourself. You're losing something, but you're not losing yourself, you know? That's there's something like that going on. He says, if the hero in you is slain, then the sun of the depths rises in you. Everything that up till now seemed to be dead in you will come to life. Your darkness, which you did not suspect since it was dead, will come to life. And you will feel the crush of total evil and the conflicts of life that still lie buried in the matter of your body. You thought you knew the abyss? It is another thing to experience it. Oh, man. You thought you knew the abyss? It is another thing to experience it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So there's some interesting stuff here, man. He, he's, he's alluding to the same image we saw before about sacrificing yourself and having this sun rise from the, from the death, from the darkness, and that being the new you that's rising and that struggle that you're having with, the, with you know, uh, your, your former self during that process of rebirth. So this is what we're seeing here. But he says some interesting stuff here. He says, everything that up till now seemed to be dead in you will come to life. So I want to put put you back in a scenario here. Let's go back into chaos a little bit. Let's go back into the moment where you lost your job and found out your wife was cheating on you and your whole life's upside down and topsy-turvy. You don't know up from down. Uh, it's a mess. Um, so put ourselves back in that position. And What you find is that you become things that you maybe haven't been in a while or maybe never before. Like you become desperate. And you become willing to do things you, you hadn't done before. Maybe you become braver even, willing to take risks that you weren't willing to do before. This is the kind of thing he's alluding to when he says, everything that was dead in you will come to life. You've got these archetypal forces within you that are designed to keep you alive. You know, they're, they're in your DNA somehow. They're in your psyche deep, deep down. And you have these you have these forces that you maybe you didn't need before, like your shadow, the, the, the force that needs you to be aggressive and that needs you to be, be able to you know, protect yourself from threats. And maybe you, maybe you let that part of you die. And that was part of the reason why you were compromised and part of the reason why you had to die to, and be reborn. You know, part of the reason you're sitting in chaos right now, you know, that sort of a thing. And you find that in those moments when you are in the darkness, that you, again, you're, you're, your soul animates those forces that you weren't using before, that you weren't, you didn't need before, that were dead before, and you've brought them back to life. Now you, now you can use them, you can harness them to do what you need to do for, you know, to manifest the way that is to come. And so there's definitely this idea of psychological forces being like that, being, you know, dead or being in this um, state of suspended animation. Yeah, they just, they're just there to come up, come alive when you need them. And unless the circumstances arise that causes them to be, you know, shaken out of their sleep, they're just going to stay dead. And there's also something like this that Jordan Peterson has talked about, but I, I want to bring it up here too. It's something called junk DNA. 
And it's, it goes beyond junk DNA, but junk DNA is a good example. So we've got all this DNA, some of which we know is active and functional for various reasons, some of which never seems to f- be active at all. It's like remnants of of instructions that we used to need when we were some other creature deep, deep in our past, but we don't need any more. It just shuts off. It doesn't do anything. That's why they call it junk DNA. See, but then you find yourself in a new place. You know, you're exposed to different weather. You're exposed to different pathogens, you know, different viruses and bacteria, different, um, uh, you know, um, pollen, different uh, air quality, whatever it is. You find yourself in a situation where you're in and you're you have new needs, you know. And what happens is your your junk DNA will turn on, you know. It's like the conditions of your life will switch it back on, and suddenly you're growing more hair to stay warm in the cold than you used to. Suddenly your metabolism works a little differently than it used to, you know. Suddenly you're you know you're more, whatever, there's all these changes that take place in your DNA that start producing things in, in your body that you never needed before. And you never had any idea that those instructions were even there because they were dead. And suddenly new circumstances will turn them back on. And so you have another example, just like the psychological forces that are dead, that are b- being resurrected only when you need them, you have the same thing happening in your own DNA, just think about just think about having the need to be more physical than you once were and suddenly you're doing a lot of exercise maybe for work or for family or something that you didn't used to do and your body starts changing your bones get more dense your muscle mass increases you start losing weight things like that what's happening exactly this type of thing is happening the circumstances around you are changing you physically biologically or psychically, spiritually, whatever, however you want to say it, these, the, you're actually transforming as a consequence of what's going on within you and around you and to you. So it's not just as simple as you having the ability to become something new, to to become someone better, to have a new personality. To have, you know, there's more than that. So you can you can transform your body just the same way. Maybe you can even do something more deeply than that and and transform even your DNA. You know, and all of these things, they may sound pie in the sky, but this is real science. This is how it really works biologically. All right, let's uh, move on here. He says, I would like you to see what the murdered hero means. Through the murder of princes, we learn that the prince in us, the hero, is threatened. There are nameless ones in you who threaten your prince, the hereditary ruler. All right, so this is a whole other level deeper. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't know even how to explain this to you if I didn't have the benefit of having read Jordan Peterson. Because he did help me to understand some of this, and I think this is going to... This is going to help uh, help you as well. When he says that the prince in us, the hero, is threatened, what he says is that there's there's something in us that is poised to be brave, 
to take risks, to explore the unknown. And that's really, really the, the most important bit, is that there's an instinct in us to explore the unknown. That's the reason why human beings have found every island, you know, that there is on the entire planet. It's the reason why we're shooting ourselves off in rockets and trying to go to Mars or whatever it is. We have this instinct to explore the unknown. There's just no arguing with that. So that's the hero within us. Um, he says that that is threatened. The part of us that's willing to go out into the unknown, to take risks, to explore, to become something something new, to become something more formidable, something that can go out into the unknown and, and successfully uh, map that territory and bring back valuable things from it. That is the hero within. That, he says, is threatened by nameless ones in you who threaten your prince, the hereditary ruler. Okay, so what are the nameless ones in you? So these are, these are the forces, the psychological forces that are there. The things that Jung is talking about when he says he's talking to the spirit of the time and the spirit of the depths in his soul. The things he talks about with, uh, in the archetypes of the collective unconscious when he talks about archetypes, the shadow, the mother, the anima. You know, these, these are names for forces and instincts within us. And those things are doing battle with one another for supremacy. This is why he says... There are nameless ones in you who threaten your prince, the hereditary ruler. That there must be some overarching power that organizes from the top down all of these forces that exist within you. And it goes back to this idea of integration that we keep talking about. You know, if you've got these forces within you and you don't integrate them into one, into, into yourself, into one thing, then you've really got all these different selves in you. Right? You've got this self that goes way back to your, like, you know, deep, deep into your evolutionary history that goes back to the time when we were, you know, reptiles. And, and there's a part of our brain that corresponds to that, let's say. And, that, and that's focused on survival, on getting food, on, on having sex and making babies, on running from danger and detecting danger. And that's it. And there's a part of you that's like that. And that's all it ever wants to do, you know? The part that makes you anxious, you know, it's all, that's the one. But then there's a there's a all sorts of other parts of you, you know. There's parts of you that are, um, you know, that are more that are high, higher order than that. Parts of you that are trying to always patch together the pieces of the of the um, uh, you know, of your perceptions and, and put them all into one big picture. And and a part of you that keeps track of who you are over all your various transformations. And there's all these forces in there that are that exist in their own right and that want to exist in their own right. And if you don't integrate them into one thing, they just pop out here and there willy-nilly without your control. So that's what he means when he says the hereditary ruler. You know, that's the person that's supposed to be controlling all of these forces. And if you don't have somebody controlling all of the forces, then you're going to be like a child. Because children don't, right? They haven't, they haven't figured that out yet. So when they get angry, they just become anger. You see how kids are when they're throwing fits. They have no reason, no rationality. They don't give a shit about nothing else. They just, they just want to cry and scream and, and, and writhe on the floor. There's a part of you like that. And if you're not careful, even as an adult, you'll find that force rearing its ugly head in ways that are embarrassing. So this is what he's pointing out. He says, look... There are these forces within you that need to be controlled. And 
you're, the thing that Jung calls yourself, that's the thing that's supposed to be ruling over them. You got, you got to get, you got to rein them in, get them under your control. Is it, if not, they're going to try to rule you. And you know, people like that who are ruled by their emotions, various kinds. All right. So that brings us to the next section, which I'm going to call splitting of the spirit. It goes like this. The spirit of the depths approached to me and said, climb down into your depths, sink. Young says, you weave the thickest darknesses and I am like a madman caught in your net, but I yearn, teach me. My soul spoke to me saying, my path is light. My light is not of this world. And then Young says, I, I know of no other world. And the soul answers, should it not exist because you know nothing of it? All right, so this is, again, another one of those dialogues where he's speaking to his soul, young and his soul, back and forth. And the soul says, my path is light, and my light is not of this world. And you might wonder what that means. And young seems to wonder what that means. But what he gets caught up on is that last bit where the soul says that my light is not of this world. Jung says, I know of no other world. And you can and you can hear in the way he's responding to it, like, uh, the word's not coming to me. He, it, well, he's, there. it's like an angry response, you know? It's an angry response. He says, I know of no other world. Just like any modern human being, especially in the West, we think of ourselves as scientific, empirical, rational people. Um, you know, we're, we're pretty level-headed. Uh, we're not too hippy-dippy. Um, we're all about the facts. Thank you very much. That sort of thing. And the soul is telling him that there's another realm of being, the realm that the soul exists in. And it's not the world that young looks around and sees all around him. It's not the physical, material, scientific world. It's something else. And that's what Jung is crying about when he says, I know of no other world. He's saying, show me the soul. Show me the world of the soul. Show, show me this abstract spiritual place because I know of no other world than the material one I'm in. And the soul replies in this snarky way, should it not exist because you know nothing of it? So his soul was trying to convince him that there is more than just the material world. And the soul has to be sought there. And it's true that Young doesn't know where it is and so can't, can't seek after it. He can't, can't get what he wants because he, can't, he doesn't know how to get there. And this is where the frustration is. And I also think this rings of, some, of, of something from the mystic experience, something that uh, W. Stacy talked about, um, another author, a Princeton professor from the turn of the century that we talked about before, is that there's a difference, significant actually, difference between the words nothing and the words non-being. And this is something that comes up in, in, uh, in this type of um, uh, uh, kind of mystic talk all the time. It's like, when we talked about opposites in you in united, that they don't become nothing because nothing doesn't exist. There's no such thing as nothing, you know? 
you might call it something else like non-being, and that yeah, it'll be closer to the point. Non-being doesn't mean nothing. It doesn't mean that there... It means something like this. It doesn't exist in the material world, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Right? Being is the material world. Non-being is... a it's something like being, but it's just not here and now. It's something else. I'm not saying I have the answer to what that something else is. What I'm saying is it's not nothing. And that's what his soul was telling Jung. And it took me a long time to understand that difference. So I'm trying, I'm trying to help you help the listeners here get there quicker. All right, now this is an interesting bit. Jung's soul says this. He says, who gives you thoughts and words? Do you make them? Are you not my serf? And you dare think that what you devise and speak could be nonsense? Don't you know yet that it comes from me? So I cried. And then Young says, But then my indignation must also come from you. And in me, you are indignant against yourself. My soul spoke, That is civil war. Okay, okay. Whew. So you remember earlier when we were talking about this image that Young was, was uh, giving us about a sun being born from the darkness, a new sun being born from the darkness, and that all of these serpents were falling on the sun trying to blot it out. And what you have basically is this image of the new personality or the new version of yourself that you're trying to bring, bring into reality, you're trying to bring, bring into being from within. You're trying to become better, you know, something, something different from what you used to be. And all of your old habits and all of your, you know, all of the, the flaws of the old self, they kind of work against you. You have to struggle against your old self to become something new. And that's the, that, that's the snakes trying to blot out that new sun situation. So you have an image of yourself struggling with your old self, your new self struggling against your old self, something like that. And here when young soul says, that is civil war, it's brother against brother, self against self. That's what comes to my mind. It's just a, a call back to this image of the old self, you know, being an obstacle to the new self. Um, and there's going to be more on this civil war business, but um, it also makes me think of a phrase from the Bible. Uh, if you guys remember, we've talked about this before, but there's a character in the Bible. His name is uh, Jacob. Um, and Jacob wrestles with God. He, he has this weird thing where he's wrestling with um, a stranger and tur turns out that the stranger was an angel or perhaps was God the whole time and he prevailed in wrestling with the angel. The angel then gives him a new name and calls him Israel. And that's where we get the word Israel from. Uh, and, and Israel, the, the nation, are, are referred to as those that, sh that wrestle with God. And again, that's another idea uh, related to civil war, wrestling with God or wrestling with yourself, that sort of thing comes to mind. Then we also have this interesting thing in the beginning where he's, where the soul was saying, who gives you, you thoughts and words? Do you make them? Uh, so he's, so the soul is asking young, all of, all of these things that you're saying, you're speaking to me, I'm speaking to you in this active imagination exercise that he's doing. It's like, where do you think these words are coming from? Are you making them, or are they coming from your unconscious? Because that's what's happening. Young's being a conduit to his unconscious. So who's doing the talking is Young's unconscious. It's his 
the spirits and the soul within him, you know? And so this, this is interesting for a few reasons because uh, Jordan Peterson and Young both talk a lot about things like where our ideas come from and where our interests come from and trying to understand that there's some part of ourselves that we don't have access to, where those things come. It's like when an idea pops in your head, where did it pop from, you know? When you put two, two, two things together and you come up with a new idea, how did that happen? You know, they, they just appear fully formed in your mind. Uh, this is the thing, this is the point he's making. He's, he's saying that there's a connection within you to your unconscious or to, to forces within you that you don't have direct access to, that you pretend aren't yourself. You've got resources kind of in your unconscious. And that's where your thoughts and words and ideas come from. The soul is saying, look, the words you're speaking, they're coming from me. They're coming from your soul. And Young says, what I'm, you know, he's indignant against his soul. Remember all the things he said about his soul? He doesn't trust his soul. You know, he's afraid of his soul. You know, all that sort of stuff. And his soul says, <laughs> excuse me, Young says, in me you are indignant against yourself. And that's so key. Because what he's realizing is that the problem he's having with his, with his soul is a problem he's having with his self. And that, according to his soul, is civil war. So let's keep going. Young says, I am ready. Ready, my soul, you who are a devil, to wrestle with you too. You donned the mask of a god, and I worshipped you. Now you wear the mask of the devil. I want to seize you, crush you. All right, so Jesus. So, so now, now Young is on board with wrestling with God. So now he wants to take on himself, and he says he wants to seize and crush his own soul, you know? And it's like that type of reaction, that type of angry, violent reaction, it's, it's like a desperation move, you know? People who act like that, they don't have any other choices. You know, people who strike out violently and lash out like that, they don't, they don't have any other ideas about what to do. That's a last resort, you know? And this is what's happening to him. So Jung it does know what or who his soul is. He identified it with God and learned his mistake. He was deceived. Now it presents itself as his, as, as his adversary, the devil, you might say. But he is suspicious that it isn't either God or the devil, but something else entirely. And and again, this is this just goes back to the way he opens this when he says, "You who are a devil, right?" He says, "You don the mask of God, and I worshipped you." It's like um, it's like Young believed that his soul might be the same thing as God, which I think is an awesome idea. It's a very panpsychist sort of idea that I. I I jive with that for sure. And but he but he brings up this idea of opposites again. So God and the devil, you know, like two sides to his soul, and he doesn't know whether to worship it or to seize it and crush it. So that, and and it also leads again back to this idea of a paradox. And you can understand where the fear that Young has comes from. Alright, he says. It was a vision of the desert. I struggled with mirror images of myself. It was a civil war in me. 
I myself was the murderer and the murdered. This murder is the indignation of incapacity against will, a Judas betrayal that one would like someone else to have committed. All right, Jesus. It's just so much packed into all this. Um, okay, so, so he goes back to this image of the desert that he was in, standing in front of his soul, remember that, and he talks now about it being like a mirror image. So he's looking at his soul, and he realizes that what he's looking at is himself. And the struggle that he's having in the desert where he's suffering. See, he's, he recognizes that that is a civil war within himself. Him against his own soul. Him against the, the force in him to transform and become what he might be, you know? And he says, I myself was the murderer and the murdered, right? He has to sacrifice himself in order to be reborn. And it's himself that has to do the sacrificing. And then he says something really interesting. He says, the murder is the indignation of incapacity against will. So the murder, the sacrifice he has to make, murdering of his old self to make way for the new, he describes it as the indignation of incapacity against will. What does that mean? So to me, I think it means something like, we can will for anything, you know? We could want and will for anything. The very greatest of things, the, the most impossible of things, or the worst of things. We, can, we have the ability to will for anything. In spite of our limitations, right? We can will for anything. That doesn't mean we can have anything. So there is an inner war going on in us between what we'd like to be and what we'd like our reality to be and what we're capable of being and doing. That is the indignation. And it seems unfair. It seems cruel even, you know, that we're a creature that can, that can have the highest of expectations and the highest of desires and be unable to ever accomplish them. It's like, why even, why even be able to wish for them then? You know? And it's so it's like the soul, you know, when he says he has civil war, you know, and his, his, his soul against himself, it's like his soul is something that seems to embody the will, seems to embody this unfettered will. And the soul, especially if we're equating it with God, which he's done just now, is to imagine no limit and no end to what, what is possible, you know? And yet... We're bound by limitations, and we can never achieve them, you know? So that's the civil war going on, something like that. He says, everything that becomes too old becomes evil. The same is true of your highest. Learn from the suffering of the crucified God that one can also betray and crucify a God. If a God ceases being the way of life, he must fall secretly. Okay, so that first bit might strike you strange. Everything that becomes too old becomes evil. And there's all kinds of ways you can think about this, but maybe the best way to think about it is the way that you interacted with... <laughs> let's say the way you interacted with, uh, with 
girls, if you're a, if you're a boy or boys, if you're a girl, when you were very young, you know, before sexual maturity dawned, when you were just friends and, you know, think about your first grade class or something like that, everyone's buddies, um, the way that you interact with someone of the opposite sex um, it may work perfectly fine when you're five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. And then all of a sudden, the way that you used to engage them doesn't work anymore, right? When when sexual maturity dawns and you start having different expectations of each other and you there's things that you want from each other you didn't used to want and, and all that sort of thing, suddenly the way you used to interact with with someone of the opposite sex, let's say, it doesn't work anymore because the circumstances have changed. See, this is what he means when he says everything that becomes too old becomes evil, that things are always changing and transforming. So everything, no matter how good it is, no matter how useful it is, will eventually stop being useful. It will eventually become evil. And he said the same is true of your highest. And then he says something something interesting. He says, learn from the suffering of the crucified God. And by that he's saying, learn from Christianity. That it's possible to betray and crucify a God. And then he says, if a God ceases being the way of life, he must secretly fall. So what does that mean? It means if your way of life is encapsulated by your religious tradition, which it is, the things that you think are the highest, the best way of being. As a Christian, you might say to be Christ-like. That's the, that's the best example to follow. That's the way of, of life. If you, <coughs> excuse me, if circumstances change in the world to where being Christ-like no longer achieves that for you, it no lo- that way of life no longer works because things have changed in such and such a way that you have to be able to crucify <laughs> You have to be able to crucify your God so that you can, so that a new God can be born that does preserve the way of life. Just like you have to develop a new personality and when you become mature or have some life-changing event occur to you, that the thing that guides you in the most deepest level, your religious feelings, that those things have to transform also. It's possible to crucify a God. In fact, it's necessary. Whew, buddy. So there is a necessity of revitalization, a rebirth. And this happens with our personalities as we enter new epics of our lives. It is illustrated in the birth of new life to replace the dying. And it is manifest in our myths and foundational beliefs, which become stale and powerless to inspire and move us over time. As we transform, our foundational principles must transform. When they do not, they die. Even gods die, as we see in the relics of bygone spirituality in the pantheons of the ancients. This is why we keep remaking movies and and retelling the same stories over and over in art under new guise. We are trying to make them new, alive again, Powerful again to move us forward. So you see it even in pop culture. And that brings us to the final segment called Murder of the Hero. Well, let's do Murder of the Hero. 
I went through a torment unto death, and I felt certain that I must kill myself if I could not solve the riddle of the murder of the hero. Then the spirit of the depths came to me and spoke these words. The highest truth is one and the same with the absurd. And this statement saved me. All right, so... All right, so Jung is, is really trying to understand what all this means, trying to take another, another step, you know, make progress towards his soul. He said he felt certain that he must kill himself, you know. He talked about being the murderer and the murdered. So he had, he had this idea that sacrifice and rebirth was all important to understanding what it means to be the hero and what it means to, to murder the hero. But this is the riddle that he's stuck on now. And the spirit of the depths came, erupted up from within him and said, the highest truth is one and the same with the absurd. And Young said, that statement saved me. So what does that mean? Okay, so the truth and absurd are one, right? They're opposites, but they make up one thing, a syzygy, as Young would say. Just as the murdered and the murderer are one. You can't have one without the other, can you? To understand this, is to understand the riddle of the murder of the hero. You are the hero and its killer. You must kill yourself or let yourself be destroyed so that you can be born again. If you aren't born anew, you will surely die. The mythologization of, of adaptation, you might call it. We must transform with the world or be left behind. Right? And then Young says, And that night my life was threatened, since I had to kill my Lord and God. Our gods want to be overcome, since they require renewal. If men kill their princes, they do so because they cannot kill the gods in themselves. All right, so now, so now Jung is sort of starting to see the light. He's starting to see what this means, what the instinct within human beings to kill, to kill even our brothers, um, what that, where it comes from. It comes from the desire or the necessity to kill the God within ourselves. So we have an instinct to do that. You know, just like, just like fertilizing our garden. We have an instinct to do that so that so that our guiding principles, our God, can be reborn, so that it, so that it doesn't go, grow old and die. And that brings us to another section where the spirits are speaking, and it says, "If the God grows old, he becomes shadow, nonsense, and he goes down. The greatest truth becomes the greatest lie. As day requires night and night day, so meaning requires absurdity, and absurdity meaning." Day does not exist through itself. The reality that exists through itself is day and night. So the reality is meaning and absurdity. All right, so in the beginning when he says, if the God grows old, he becomes shadow and nonsense and goes down, he seems to mean something like sinking down into the unconscious, sinking down into, into hell, right? Uh, into the underworld. And he goes away. He's not gone, but you know, he's still there, but he's, but, he's, but he's gone away. And that's something like God becoming a 
absurdity, right? He, he calls it nonsense, but God becoming chaos, God becoming absurdity. That's one side of the syzygy. That's one half of itself. And when that happens, it has to be reborn, right? It, it can't be just absurdity. It has to be sense and nonsense. It has to be chaos and order. It can't just be one or the other. And as the God grows old, it becomes more and more nonsense and sinks down into the unconscious and needs to be re- reborn. He says, so meaning is a moment and a transition from absurdity to absurdity. And absurdity only a moment and transition from meaning to meaning. And that should sound exactly like the description of the yin and yang we talked about earlier. The black side and the white side. The black can become white, the white can become black. And it, and it illustrates a process, a back and forth between chaos and order, between absurdity and meaning. And it reminds me again of the process from Alfred North Whitehead as he described God as a process, like a back and forth. And then while we're talking about uh, religion, Jung says something pretty interesting. He says, Judge not. Think of the blonde savage of the German forests who had to betray the hammer-brandishing thunder to the pale Near Eastern god who was nailed to the wood like a chicken marten. After death on the cross, Christ went into the underworld and became hell. He took on the form of the Antichrist, the dragon, which announces the new God, whose coming the ancients had foreseen. Okay, so geez, that, I mean, that's, that first sentence is quite the sentence. Um, think of the blonde savage of the German forest. So he's painting this picture of these pagan pre-Christian people from Scandinavia and Germany, the people that worshipped Thor and Loki and Odin, you know. That's what that's when he says those people had to betray the hammer brandishing thunder. That's the thunder god. For the pale near eastern god, of course that's Jesus, who was nailed to the wood like a chicken martin. So that's an awfully ev- evocative sentence, but a chicken martin, if you don't know, is a it's a predator like a weasel that kills chickens, but it kills for fun. So it just if it gets into your chicken coop, it'll just kill all of your chickens. And he, that's how Young is describing Jesus is nailed to a, a piece of wood the way you would, the way you would nail a chicken, Martin, to, you know, to to a to the outside of your of your uh, chicken coop to as a warning to the other to the other predators, you know. Then he says, after death on the cross, Christ had to go down into the underworld, which if you're a Catholic, you believe he did, and he became hell and took on the form of the Antichrist or the dragon. No. What you have to see in that image is opposites united. Christ and the Antichrist coming together. So when Christ goes to hell, he becomes the Antichrist. And that's how Christ becomes both both halves of, of a syzygy. You know, the opposites united. And remember, what happens when opposites are united? Like male and female. Well, that's sex. That's a generative act that gives birth to something new. So the image here is Christ going down into hell, finding his other half, becoming one and giving birth to a new God. A new God who Jung says the ancients had foreseen. And I want to put this in a different way to to link to something we talked about a bit ago. Here, Christ becomes his own adversary. Remember we were talking about civil war before between Jung and his soul? 
Christ becomes his own adversary in order that he secure his own fate to be destroyed. But not just that, to be reborn. A new God to replace the old. A new mask for a new time. Something like that. And in the last quote here, it goes like this. It is the mourning of the dead in me which precedes rebirth. The rain is the fructifying of the earth. It begets the new wheat, the young germinating God. That's exactly it. You die within so that you can be reborn. The God, the God that, that you submit to has to die in order to be reborn. You see it at every level of analysis, the necessity of death and rebirth. And because all is one, and all sacrifice is self-sacrifice, like we said earlier, the, the new God is something that's born within us. You know? It's almost like we select we select the new God the way that we the way that we select our own the, the meaning of events, you know? Like it's on us. That brings me to my conclusion. Where we picked up in this episode was in the desert of Young's self, which had just begun to bloom again. Young suffered and yearned and challenged the spirits within his self until at long last he came face to face with his soul as if for the very first time. As he returned to himself, he began to see life return to his desert the harmony between his own efforts and fruits manifesting within started to show him something, to reveal some great truth. He discovered that he had the power to make his desert green and so could no longer pretend that he and the desert are different things. The desert is an image, as Jung said, an image of his self, he came to understand that his soul, like the desert, belongs to him. But more, it is him. The hidden thing that he mistrusts, that he fears so much, it is nothing more than himself. In this, he comes to know that he is the power within that he's afraid of. The power that gives him his thoughts and his words, as his soul teased, has been himself all along. But if he and the thing he fears and yearns for are one, then he is and has always been his own adversary. He is his own God and his own devil, his own Christ and Antichrist. But why? Why should this be? Why should there be civil war within each of us? Because death begets life. The old beget the new. Because civil war burns away the chaff to leave in its wake something new. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there?
Let's find out together in the next episode.